Section 4 of History of Egypt, Chaldea, Syria, Babylonia, and Assyria, Volume 3, by Gaston Maspero. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter 1. Ancient Chaldea, Part 4. The flora would not have been so abundant if the fauna had been sufficient for the supply of a large population. A considerable proportion of the tribes on the lower Euphrates lived for a long time on fish only. They consumed them either fresh, salted, or smoked. They dried them in the sun, crushed them in a mortar, strained the pulp through linen, and worked it up into a kind of bread or cakes. The barbel and carp attained a great size in these sluggish waters, and if the Chaldeans, like the Arabs who have succeeded them in these regions, clearly preferred these fish above others, they did not despise at the same time less delicate species as the eel, marina, salurus, and even that singular gunard whose habits are an object of wonder to our naturalists. This fish spends its existence usually in the water, but a life in the open air has no terrors for it. It leaps out on the bank, climbs trees without much difficulty, finds a congenial habitat on the banks of mud exposed by the falling tide, and basks there in the sun, prepared to vanish in the ooze in the twinkling of an eye if some approaching bird should catch sight of it. Pelicans, herons, cranes, storks, cormorants, hundreds of varieties of seagulls, ducks, swans, wild geese, secure in the possession of an inexhaustible supply of food, sport and prosper among the reeds. The ostrich, greater bustard, the common and red-legged partridge and quail, find their habitat on the borders of the desert, while the thrush, blackbird, ortolan, pigeon, and turtle-dove abound on every side, in spite of daily onslaughts from eagles, hawks, and other birds of prey. Snakes are found here and there, but they are for the most part of innocent species. Three poisonous varieties only are known, and their bite does not produce such terrible consequences as that of the horned viper or Egyptian uraeus. There are two kinds of lion, one without mane and the other hooded, with a heavy mass of black and tangled hair. The proper signification of the old Chaldean name was the great dog, and they have indeed a greater resemblance to large dogs than to the red lions of Africa. They fly at the approach of man, they betake themselves in the daytime to retreats among the marches or in the thickets which border the rivers, sallying forth at night, like the jackal, to scour the country. Driven to bay, they turn upon the assailant and fight desperately. The Chaldean kings, like the pharaohs, did not shrink from entering into a close conflict with them, and boasted of having rendered a service to their subjects by the destruction of many of these beasts. The elephant seems to have roamed for some time over the steppes of the middle Euphrates, there is no indication of its presence after the thirteenth century before our era, and from that time forward it was merely an object of curiosity brought at great expense from distant countries. This is not the only instance of animals which have disappeared in the course of centuries. The rulers of Nineveh were so addicted to the pursuit of the Urus that they ended by exterminating it. Several sorts of panthers and smaller philidae had their lairs in the thickets of Mesopotamia. The wild ass and onager roamed in small herds between the Balik and the Tigris. Attempts were made, it would seem, at a very early period to tame them and make use of them to draw chariots, but this attempt either did not succeed at all, or issued in such uncertain results, that it was given up as soon as other less refractory animals were made the object of successful experiment. The wild boar and his relative, the domestic hog, inhabited the morasses. Assyrian sculptors amused themselves sometimes by representing long, gaunt sows making their way through the cane-brakes, 
followed by their interminable offspring. The hog remained here, as in Egypt, in a semi-tamed condition, and the people were possessed of only a small number of domesticated animals besides the dog, namely, the ass, ox, goat, and sheep. The horse and camel were at first unknown, and were introduced at a later period. We know nothing of the efforts which the first inhabitants, Sumerians and Semites, had to make in order to control the waters and to bring the land under culture. The most ancient monuments exhibit them as already possessors of the soil, and in a forward state of civilization. Their chief cities were divided into two groups, one in the south, in the neighborhood of the sea, the other in a northern direction, in the region where the Euphrates and Tigris are separated from each other by merely a narrow strip of land. The southern group consisted of seven, of which Eridu lay nearest to the coast. This town stood on the left bank of the Euphrates, at a point which is now called Abu Sharim. A little to the west, on the opposite bank, but at some distance from the stream, the mound of Mughir marks the site of Uru, the most important, if not the oldest, of the southern cities. Lagash occupied the site of the modern Tello to the north of Iridu, not far from the Shat al-Hai. Nisin and Mar, Larsam and Uruk, occupied positions at short distances from each other on the marshy ground, which extends between the Euphrates and the Shat and Nil. The inscriptions mentioned here and there other less important places, of which the ruins have not yet been discovered, Zirlab and Shurapak, places of embarkation at the mouth of the Euphrates for the passage of the Persian Gulf, and the island of Dilmun, situated some forty leagues to the south in the centre of the Salt Sea, Nar Maratum. The northern group comprised Nippur, the incomparable, Barsip, on the branch which flows parallel to the Euphrates and falls into the Bar el Nijif. Babylon, the gate of the god, the residence of life, the only metropolis of the Euphrates region which posterity never lost a reminiscence, Kishu, Kuda, Agade, and lastly the two Cyparus, that of Shamash and that of Anunit. The earliest Chaldean civilization was confined almost entirely to the two banks of the lower Euphrates, except at its northern boundary, it did not reach the Tigris, and did not cross this river. Separated from the rest of the world, on the east by the marshes which border the river in its lower course, on the north by the badly watered and sparsely inhabited tableland of Mesopotamia, on the west by the Arabian desert, it was able to develop its civilization, as Egypt had done, in an isolated area, and to follow out its destiny in peace. The only point from which it might anticipate serious danger was on the east, whence the Kashi and the Elamites, organized into military states, incessantly harassed it year after year by their attacks. The Kashi were scarcely better than half-civilized mountain hordes, but the Elamites were advanced in civilization, and their capital, Susa, vied with the richest cities of the Euphrates, Uru and Babylon, in antiquity and magnificence. There was nothing serious to fear from the Guti, on the branch of the Tigris to the northeast, or from the Shuti to the north of these. They were merely marauding tribes, and however troublesome they might be to their neighbors in their devastating incursions, they could not compromise the existence of the country, or bring it into subjection. It would appear that the Chaldeans had already begun to encroach upon these tribes, and to establish colonies among them. El Ashur on the banks of the Tigris, Haran on the furthest point of the Mesopotamian plain, towards the sources of the Balik. Beyond these were vague and unknown regions, Tidinum, Martu, the Sea of the Setting Sun, the vast territories of Melukha and Magan. 
Egypt, from the time they were acquainted with its existence, was a semi-fabulous country at the ends of the earth. How long did it take to bring this people out of savagery, and to build up so many flourishing cities? The learned did not readily resign themselves to a confession of ignorance on the subject. As they had depicted the primordial chaos, the birth of the gods, and their struggles over the creation, so they related unhesitatingly everything which had happened since the creation of mankind, and they laid claim to being able to calculate the number of centuries which lay between their own day and the origin of things. The tradition to which most credence was attached in the Greek period at Babylon, that which has been preserved for us in the histories of Borosu, asserts that there was a somewhat long interval between the manifestation of Oannes and the foundation of a dynasty. The first king was Alorus of Babylon, a Chaldean of whom nothing is related except that he was chosen by the divinity himself to be a shepherd of the people. He reigned for ten sari, amounting in all to thirty-six thousand years, for the Saros is thirty-six hundred years, the Nur six hundred years, and the Sas sixty years. After the death of Aloros, his son Alaparos ruled for three sari, after which Amalaros, of the city of Pantabibla, reigned thirteen sari. It was under him that there issued from the Red Sea a second Anadatus, resembling Oannes in his semi-divine shape, half man and half fish. After him Amemnon, also from Pantabibla, a Chaldean, ruled for a term of twelve sari. Under him, they say, the mysterious Oannes appeared. Afterwards Amelagaros of Pantabibla governed for eighteen sari. Then Davos, the shepherd from Pantabibla, reigned ten sari. Under him there issued from the Red Sea a fourth Anadotus, who had a form similar to the others, being made up of man and fish. After him, Ved Doranchos of Pantabibla reigned for eighteen sari, and in this time there issued yet another monster, named Anadophos, from the sea. These various monsters developed carefully and in detail that which Oannes had set forth in a brief way. Then Amemsinos of Laurantia, a Chaldean, reigned ten sari, and Obartes, also a Chaldean, of Laurantia, eight sari. Finally, on the death of Obartes, his son Zisithros held the scepter for eighteen sari. It was under him that the great deluge took place. Thus ten kings are to be reckoned in all, and the duration of their combined reigns amounts to one hundred and twenty sari. From the beginning of the world to the deluge, they reckoned six hundred and ninety-one thousand two hundred years, of which two hundred and fifty-nine thousand two hundred had passed before the coming of Aloros, and the remaining four hundred and thirty-two thousand were generously distributed between this prince and his immediate successors. The Greek and Latin writers had certainly a fine occasion for amusement over these fabulous number of years which the Chaldeans assigned to the lives and reigns of their first kings. End of Part 4 Read by Professor Heather and By. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.